Bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another episode of the Middle West podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Thaqib Musa, and I'm joined by my co-host, Asad Hussain. Assalamu alaikum. And we're joined uh, through phone um, from Ireland uh, by uh, Ibrahim Halawa. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. Thank you very much for having me today. Jazakallah uh, khair for coming on. So um, Ibrahim is a uh, is an activist. He's a law student, um, and uh, many of you might know him. Uh, there were campaigns um, to free him as uh, Ibrahim spent four years in um, in prisons in Egypt uh, after this uh, after the CC time. So with the we, we heard of the passing of uh, Dr. Mohammed Mursi, the first democratically elected um, president of first and only democratically elected president of uh, of Egypt rahimahullah uh, over the past week and uh, we wanted from Ibrahim we wanted to get a little bit of a uh, kind of your experience of prison what life's like there uh, which will give us a little bit of an insight into uh, what Dr. Mursi would have gone through uh, in his in his last years but also um, get kind of uh, a little bit of the experience of on the ground, what it was like, what the background was, um, and also understand how you came to be where you were, what your journey was like. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's what today's theme is going to be about. Um, so I think it would be a little bit out of place if I started making too many jokes about Asad because basically we're in his, we're in his hometown, Rochdale, which is a little backwater on the... See, I don't know why I keep saying backwater. I don't know. Like, it's, back, it's like it's like it's irrelevant and small and it's irrelevant. Okay, um, that's fine. But <laughs> yes, we're we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, it's far too serious for that. Of course. Um, so Ibrahim, where where in Ireland are you? Uh, um, so I'm situated in, in in Dublin at the moment, Dublin city. Um, not too far from the city centre. If anyone has been around there, I love Ireland. To be honest, it's it's small, it's green, and it's beautiful but if you right. get busy you kind of go into the city yeah is 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 dublin the republic of ireland or is it northern ireland yeah 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 it's the republic of ireland it's, it's, the, republic it's the city it's the city yeah. okay alhamdulillah um there's a, there's a lot there's a bit of background where is that like a is there like motorbikes are you on the are you on the streets of dublin right now or no i think i think my my neighbor is drilling something um so I think I think that's that's what it is. Okay. Um but yeah, we'll get a little bit of ASMR or something in uh, uh in our recording. Um but so you grew up you were born and raised in Ireland, right? Uh yeah, I was I was uh, born, raised, grew up my whole life studied here in Ireland. Uh my since my parents have moved here and, and I've been here basically. And and your parents did they or were they like did they so you're Egyptian originally and uh, when did your like, Yeah. when and uh, kind of why? So did, my, I can, so my kind of my dad's, you know, my dad's history was he, th- there's always been oppression in Egypt and there's always been, you know, lack of uh, freedom, uh, you know, freedom of expression and, you know, doing your job. And my dad as an imam, you kind of, like my dad's a sheikh, so he, he needs to speak about the issues and the politics within, within the, you know, within the world and within the Muslim society, of course. But so he felt that he was very restricted kind of uh, back in the day in Egypt. And at the time he, he just had to, he had to immigrate and he left and you know he've lived he's he's lived in many places he's moved to pakistan he lived there for 10 years he lived to, he lived in yemen Sorry, he moved to uh, where? pakistan yeah yeah he lived in islamabad for 10 years two ten, of my sisters I, I, were ten, actually 10 years yeah. were you were you born there as well or was it no no just just fatima and umayma okay mashallah but yeah that's uh, yeah. 
That's, wow, okay, yeah. Man. Uh, so <laughs> that, no, I know when I say it, people are like, "Wow!" Like, where did that come from? But yeah, so he's been around, and then Subhanallah at the time they said to him, "You know, you need to come to Ireland because there's there's a small Muslim community, and they have no one here uh, as an imam." And it's kind of you know he was kind of worried at the start with the Europe ideology. He felt that it would be somewhat strange, as you know, the way it's brought back. Uh, to to the Middle East, how Europe is kind of, but you know he came here, he loved it, and he 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 decided that he was going to stay here kind of for the rest of his life, inshallah. Um, and we've been here and we've been established in the big mosque in ICC. I of course, and I've went to school. I've uh, I went to a primary school called Holy Rosary, secondary school called Rockbrook, and in college in New City. Alhamdulillah. Okay, so that's so. How does um, so? Obviously, you've still got. Uh, assume because of your dad, you've got a strong kind of um, moral attachment to to Egypt. That's, I think that's the right way to say it. Um, yeah. But the the other like, how how does that like how did you end up in Egypt? Because it wasn't the 2011 protest that you went to, right? Which toppled Hosni Mubarak originally, the January protests. Yeah, no, no, no. So uh, at the time. My dad, of course, at the time of 2011, we'd usually always go back to Egypt because we have extended family. So my, you know, I was born here, I was raised here, I adapted the kind of like the Irish life, the Irish society uh, within me, um, kind of the Irish culture within me. But when my when my dad, of course, is originated and he was raised and he's born, he's obviously going to raise his kids to love what he loves. And so he raised us to love you know Egypt and to love the environment and to love the Islamic culture over there um, so of course he also has sisters and, and cousins and family so as as his sons and daughters we can't neglect the fact that he has family over there and these in the end of the day are our family as well so we had to go visit them every single year but at the in the pro in uh, in 2011 in the revolution we couldn't go there anymore because it wasn't safe he, he was in fear that we would die or something we'll get shot at the time there was deaths a lot of deaths um, so we hadn't been there for like two or three years. Um, and then in the summer of 2013, we decided, okay, halas, I'm going to go there, inshallah. Um, my sisters had been there before me. I had just been finishing my Leaving Cert uh, exams. Um, I don't know, do you call them Leaving Cert in, in the UK as well or not? Like A-levels, but, uh, right? A-level equivalent? That's just it's school before you go to college, yeah. No, high school. High, was, yeah, high yeah. school. Yeah, finishing high school, yeah. You were that young? You were in high school. That's yeah, yeah, I was seventeen. I was only seventeen. Yeah. Okay. I was just out of I was just out of exams, and you know, we I went to I went to Egypt. It was before the coup. It was before any disturbance was uh, has so taken this place is in now, Egypt. From your like 2012 is when Mursi was elected. Uh, yeah. July twenty twelve. Everything's stable now. We have a democratic government. Uh, Things are progressing. Yeah, it was it was like that. There was obviously an opposition, um, like in any other country where opposition have their voice. They're speaking out. They don't like some uh, stuff in the country. They don't like some uh, uh, political issues. But that's normal. It's in it's in every single country in the world. Um, and of course, at the time, it was it was kind. It was more how that a lot of Egyptian people were feeling how freedom actually tastes like. And that for me was actually a shock because, you know, going into Egypt always in Mubarak's days, we always had a European passport. We were treated differently than, than the normal Egyptian citizen. We were treated better. We, you know, um, if we called the police, they would arrive in time. Um, if you call an ambulance, they would arrive in time. If you go into hospital, you're treated, you're treated much quicker. So we 
we didn't really feel the oppression, but we knew it was there. We sensed it because how does our that, extended how does family with, had sensed it. How does that work with police and stuff? Like, do you when you call, do you call through the embassy or something like that, or? So you know they have they have they have police called the tourism police, shorta uh, So you call them and they obviously you know you tell them that you're a citizen and they come much quicker. Uh, cases are dealt with much faster. Um, you don't you're not meant to technically lose your rights if if you are ever abused in the system uh, in Mubarak's days. Okay. So Mubarak had yeah he he built a more stable empire for for the non-Egyptians but for the Egyptians it, it really was crushing um, because I think he was using the people's energy he was using the people's money to build an empire for for the tourists uh, to, to come to Egypt and that's where it kind of got difficult for the Egyptian people that the, there was there, you know there was there was everything was more expensive there was no bread there was no food uh, petrol was becoming expensive uh, you know the level of crime was rising so so it was kind of at the time where people said, okay, enough is enough that he's going to hand it down to his son, uh, Jamal Mubarak. And at the time, you know, they took a decision and they moved and they succeeded and the Egyptian people did. Um, did you get a sense of, because a, um, a lot of people who maybe supported the coup or something, because um, in Tamarud, the level, so now we're back to 2013, when the people actually mm-hmm. went out on the streets and what's called the Tamarud group. Um, yeah. Did, was that, did you get a sense of that where um because some of the people said that they were feeling restricted and Mursi was making like bad governance decisions and things like that some of which has been uh kind of uh rejected by by some of the numbers uh, but did you get a sense of anything on the ground of uh like the governance was bad or Mm-hmm. So of course, like I said, I felt there was an opposition. I felt there was tomorrow. It kind of grew at the end of June. Uh, I was there way before. Like for instance, I was in Rabah Square like a few days before uh, Rabah, and I was in Tahrir, and there was absolutely no one. There was absolutely nothing. Um, there hadn't been camps set up. There hadn't been people sleeping, uh, protesting. There hadn't been any protest of some sort. But there's there were people speaking on the media. Tomorrow was speaking, like you said, and the opposition were kind of loud. But yet again. I felt that kind of Dr. Mursi rahmatullah and I, I send my deepest condolences to his family, of course, uh, who are grieving at this moment, and the people of Egypt uh, for many reasons. Whether you agree with President Morsi or you disagree, uh, he was the first elected uh, president of Egypt. So rahmatullah and may Allah accept him, inshallah. Um, but what I was saying is is that at the time. He, he he went out on the media. He replied to those oppositions. He was speaking. Um, I felt that at the time he was giving them their freedom of expression. They were allowed to express what they if they if they don't like anything um, within the system, and that it could be changed by him at the time of his presidency. Uh, but we had something. We had an idea, but there was something else planned, and the coup the coup was being planned, of course, by 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 Abdel Fattah Sisi at the time. Little did we know, of course. Yeah. Um, so you so you watched tomorrow happening. You were there when. It was ongoing. Yeah, of course. I, at the time, it was taking place. And look, from a democratically, uh, from a democratic background, that me being raised in Dublin, I, I know that I know that there's something called freedom. I, I'm 17. I don't know yet the depth of politics and and you know the roots of politics and, and all that. But I knew that there were simple rights that were given to human beings, and that was freedom of expression at the time. Um, and I, I saw Tamarud speaking out and I said, okay, that's, that, 
that's fair enough. So I want I wanted to understand more of what was happening, and I and I took my brother and we went down to Tahrir. It was me, my brother, and my friend, and we said let's let's see what these people were were speaking. And I was speaking to one officer at the side. He, there was an officer there, and he was he's in his uniform, and you know these these little informations, these little details. I wanted to to put in my book because they were very crucial. Is he he at the time said to me, Ibrahim. You know, when I said to him, I'm from Ireland, uh, and and I was very, you know, I was joking with him, and I was kind of being good with him. He opened up, and he was like, like uh, Ibrahim, what I really want to tell you is that we all have received orders uh, to wear, um, you know, casual clothes and to pack tahrir uh, up. And I said, but that's not fair, because, of course, you have the freedom of expression, but you can't be an officer, and, you know, you can't just get all the police department to protest as normal citizens in Tahrir Square and say that they are somewhat... Of course, there was an opposition. I'm not denying that there was an opposition. Yeah, so there was, there, was there, was a, there was a big kind of... Um, yeah, the protests do, do you get me? In Tahrir. So exactly. They, so the Washington, the Washington Post um, reported on Sorry? this as well. The Washington, the Washington Post. I remember an article a couple of years ago reporting on the yeah. fake... That, the so-called fake protesters of the exactly. revolution. Well, they'd have basically you'd have mercenary protesters, yeah. the people who either, either bought to go in the streets, or they worked for the government in the first place. So there was kind of a sense of illegitimacy yeah. in the revolution to begin with. Yeah. Okay, so sorry, Hello? just I'm I'm just gonna go on a quick tangent yeah. because you said you wanted to put it in your book. Is this like a book you're writing or? Yeah, inshallah. I think like I uh, subhanallah, I was always delaying to finish it for some reason, but I felt like. After the death of Dr. Morsi, um, there will be more to the story, of course, and what will happen to the Egyptian people. But the story contained two people. It contained Morsi and it contained Sisi and it contained all the people uh, under him um, within the political system, within the, politi- uh, the political prisoners. So there's a lot of people in the middle. But now that Morsi is gone, what's going to happen in Egypt is yet to, to be watched. But for me, it's kind of, that's where... It, it's not where the hope ends, but it's where the story ends. Do you get me? Because a lot of people in Egypt had hope that one day uh, Morsi will be, you know, brought back to his uh, presidential seat and he will sit down and, you know, whether he will denounce his, you know, his leadership of the, of the country's presidency. But, um, but for me, it's kind of the story. It's not over for Egypt but it's over for, for the political prisoners. A lot of the political prisoners had hope in, in, in Morsi. You know, I always say, okay, that he is a human being. He could have died. But at the time, uh, Sisi's only, uh, you know, he's, he, the only person he really feared was, was Morsi. He, he hated the fact that there was two people being called president. A lot of people were calling Sisi president and a lot of people were calling Morsi president. So he felt that there was competition 24-7 uh, within the uh, prison system. And for me, when, when, I, when I heard that Dr. Morsi died, I was, I was in work at the time. I, cu- I couldn't believe the news. I couldn't. Because a lot of people built hope. You know, we, we would joke in prison and, and, and a lot of people would say, oh, Brahim, I bet you that uh, President Morsi will return to his seat and Egypt will be fine again. That Sisi is only taking a little bit from, from his time. But now everything has changed. Tables have turned. What is to happen next to all of those people that have been politically imprisoned and still remain behind bars? Like, I know people inside 
um, who started the hunger strike since the, the, the death of President Morsi, they have uh, they have not received any visits. They're not allowed to receive any visits since his death. Um, they're not allowed to receive any any recess time, so they're not allowed to go out of their cell at all. So they're twenty four seven in the cell. This this is torture. It it's 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 blatant torture. You can't expect anyone to sit in one place with a locked room with no facilities to live except water and some food in a cell for twenty four seven. So and a lot of people. So yeah. one of the things, well, a lot of things that you mentioned there were to do with the conditions of the cell. So the yeah. conditions of your imprisonment and the imprisonment of the people you were with whilst you were in Egypt. Um, yeah. I remember you you wrote an article for The Guardian uh, concerning yeah. your conditions whilst you were in Egypt. And one of the things you said right at the beginning of the article, you made a distinction between yeah. the physical torture that you endured and the mental torture. Yeah. And you said that you'd rather go through the physical torture a hundred times more than the mental torture yeah, because the that, mental that torture is... already got to you. So could you explain more about that? Because anybody listening to this would think, <clears throat> I'd rather prefer yeah. mental torture than physical because physical is something more tangible there. Someone burning your skin, someone hitting you. That was it. that was exactly and like bringing up the, the the article of the Guardian. I couldn't I couldn't stack in all the information of what was happening. Do you get me? Like I couldn't I couldn't explain all the information of what was happening in one paper. Like a four years of torture, I couldn't explain it in one paper. Yet again, I felt that I have some sense of responsibility that I have to speak about. That you know, I felt that. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, Allah has, has chosen me from, from, from Europe as a 17-year-old who kind of, we can, we can say, you know, an innocent teenager was brought all the way uh, with, with the choice of Allah uh, subhanahu wa ta'ala that he put me within those Egyptian people to witness the oppression that, uh, you know, is, is taking place behind locked doors. And for me, I... I you know, like it was, it was a part of me at the time that I, I felt like, okay, I have to write about this. I have to explain to the people that I live with what I'm just seeing as a, as a naive, you know, 17 year old. I have to write about this. I can't, I can't just stay quiet. You can't tell me that, if, okay, because I knew that there will be consequences when I write this article. I knew that they will come into my cell the next day, and it so it happened. The next day, I was studying for I was studying for exams, and uh, I wanted to continue my education. So I brought in books, and I said I'll start studying. And there was exams coming up. The next day, they said to me, "You have to sign a paper that what you wrote was 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 all a lie, and what you wrote was not true. And if you don't do that, I said, if I don't do that, you, I know what the consequences are. You're going to come to my cell, and I'm willing to I'm willing to take the consequences. So you I'm you, not going to you wrote the article while you were in the cell. Yeah, I wrote the article while I was in the cell. Uh, I smuggled it at the time. And of course, when it was published, they came to me and they said, how did you smuggle it? They were very angry. Uh, they were very aggressive. They were very abusive. And they came and they said, OK, you need to sign a paper that you did that, you, you know, you didn't write this was right upon you. This is not true. Um, you know, someone's lying on, be, on your behalf uh, outside that the Guardian are liars, whatever. And, you know, they, they always did this every single time a newspaper, a news article, a news story came about about me. Egypt would respond in its newspapers calling the BBC as a terrorist or uh, news uh, news art, uh, newspaper um, they would call um, the Guardian they were called the Independent I think they have chosen all the Western media and called them under the title that they somewhat collaborate with terrorism uh, and uh, terrorist organizations just to, just to give so, a little bit of context sorry um, we were so Tamarud was an anti-Mursi kind of 
little, and and we talked about how some of the protests were rigged. Um, the key thing in this was that Mursi didn't order any of the guards to do do anything, and so those protests continued to be uh, peaceful. And then suddenly, when the coup happened, uh, so Abdul Fattah Sisi stepped in and he deposed um, uh, President and took him into basically arrest uh, based on these protests. So he said, this is what the people are demanding. And that's when the the other protest, which is the Rabia protests, which I believe you were a part of. So you weren't part of the Tamarud protests, you were just around there. But then mm-hmm. you were you were part of the Rabia protest and you got arrested directly from there, right? And no, so I I, I kind of need to make it clear that at the time I wasn't part of anyone. I wasn't. I wasn't. I needed to. I needed to kind of see. I went down to Tahrir to have a brief idea of what they were saying. Maybe I agreed with them, and I went down to Rabha to see what they were saying, and, and maybe I agreed with them also. And I did. I felt that okay, what they're speaking is common sense. That if someone was brought to power by the choice of people, that he should only be taken off power by the choice of people. The ballot box. It's 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 you know it's the simple rules of democracy unless of course uh, you know he's 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 off you know offspring killing people twenty four seven which President Morsi at the time wasn't doing and and no official government can come out and say that he was killing a lot of people uh, for no for for no reason whatsoever like like Sisi is doing right now and yet Sisi wasn't you know he wasn't overthrown by another military uh, officer uh, general officer in the military. Because it doesn't happen. They want it for them. The military wants the, the country to be ruled only by them. And when I used to ask the officers uh, and the military officers, they said, we fought the war. We have the right to rule the country. When war comes into the country, who goes out to the fields and fights? It's us. So who rules the country? It's us. That was their, their ideology. That's what they believed in. And they were totally convinced by that. It wasn't the fact that they just wanted, you know, uh, to stay in power for the sake of oh, removing Mursi. No, they believed that the the country was theirs, and that's why I felt that they 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 started to turn it into a mafia. It was like some some you know some organizational uh, threat to the Egyptian Egyptian people. Yeah, and when I, think, I wrote the article, I think yeah. one of the one of the numbers is like, uh, especially at the time. So at the time that Mursi was elected. Uh, when they published their first budgets and stuff like that, uh, about 24% of the businesses were owned by the military. Uh, like 24% yeah. of the economy, basically, uh, was functioning on the on the behest of the military. So it was a very kind of uphill battle. Um, and I think, yeah, so so, um, so what, one thing I wanted to go into a little bit, like that just provides a bit of context of your jail time. So you spent four years in prison, mm-hmm. but... On Rabia, which is basically when Abdul Fattah Sisi uh, ordered the opening of um, a fire onto the prisoners, and like two thousand two thousand prisoners plus died there. I think were you yeah. there on the ground there? But did did you experience yeah. some of the shooting? Yeah, it was. Look for, for me. I don't I, like. I don't want to get into too much detail for us, so we don't we don't lose the topic of it. But when I was at Rabia, of course there was protests. Um, the you know. The the officers or the military would come and they would shoot um, lightly from afar. This was before Rabah. So I think they wanted to test what would be the response of the people. Yet the response was so peaceful. So they tested it once, they tested it twice. And then third time with Rabah, 
um, you know, they just they, they they went on a killing spree. So they just started killing everyone. Uh, they came in with the tanks. They came in with the bulldozers. They just, you know, they ran over people. They set people on fire. I think the images are online for anyone to see them if they if they wish. Of course, it's you know it's very graphic, but but it's reality. People need to see this to understand that this is taking place by a dictator who's in power. Uh, until until today and and we've allowed him and i'm not saying saying we've just the you know the people who are rabba no i'm saying we as european citizens and as european governments we've allowed uh sisi uh, to do to you know to dictate a country like that for so long because all our governments all our european governments have failed to come out and call this a coup they have failed you know, very little governments have actually came out and said to CC that what you're doing is, you know, is a clear coup. It's against an elected president. It's it's violating the rights of the Egyptian people. They have not said that so far. And I, I've said this when I was in Geneva, and I said this when I was in the European Parliament, when I when I was at the UN as well. I said it. I said that you know you're saying that you want to fight. Uh, you know, terrorism within Egypt, and Fatah Sisi saying that he has terrorism. I'm saying, sorry, if you take an innocent person and you keep torturing him and you torture his wife right in front of his eyes, because I had a guy with me who 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 his his wife was tortured right in front of him. She was electrocuted in her private parts, uh, and I'm sorry to say this, but again, it's reality. This guy is not obviously going to go outside and say, "Thank you, Sisi, for for teaching me a beautiful lesson. I now respect you as my president." You know. He's obviously going to go outside and he's going to take some action that then at the time CC will take, uh, you know, by his the, his media will capture it and they will say this is what terrorism is and this is the counterterrorism that we, we are fighting. So uh, it's a plan. It's, it's, it's a direct plan that he imprisons innocent people. They go out. He tortures them. He tortures their family. They go out. They take action. He films that. And then he goes to the European uh, government and he says, look, I'm, I'm fighting terrorism. When in fact he's actually manufacturing them, I've seen people go from innocent to terrorists right in front of my eyes. So uh, I think one of the one of the points that the CC government administration makes is that what they're doing in the prisons isn't torture; it doesn't classify as torture. So this is the argument made by the Egyptian government is that what they do to the prisoners in the Egyptian prisons, whether it be um, light deprivation, whether it be sleep deprivation, whether it be solitary confinement, and what you said as well, the actual physical torture as well. Um, isn't torture. It may, at most, they say, classify as cruel and other inhumane, degrading treatment, but um, they use different kind of... The, the, the mechanisms, the legal mechanisms that the Egyptian government uses is quite... It kind of resembles the um, the post-9-11 war on terror um, kind of I mean, justifications a, a by Bush. Of, a lot of this hawkish kind of conversation, because like Dr. Mursi was in solitary confinement for the whole six years he was there, um, and it just reminds you of like the way these people talk and the people who defend them. Um, so Trump's uh, Trump's administration was recently defending uh, the what they do to children, like uh, they, the ICE, uh, ICE, the yeah, immigration yeah. police. Uh, they put children in without any like without any blankets or anything, toothbrushes and, to, and stuff without like toothbrushes, yeah. without basic hygiene, and then they have to sleep on the floor on the tile, and it's really really cold and. Literally, with a straight face, she was saying to the judge, "That's fine. Like that's that's safe and that's fine. That's safe and sanitary. Um, it's yeah. not." And and the judge was arguing back, "How can you say it's safe and sanitary if a person can't sleep?" And it sounds like in Egypt, the things are much much worse. Um, yeah. Well, the thing in yeah, that's the thing yeah. to remember Sorry, is yes. the the context of the American 
um, the American immigration program is. The, I said I can't hear you. I'm sorry. The context the of the context of the American immigration program is the fact that they're not prisoners. That's the that's number one. So when America's arguing in courts of law regarding yeah. the status of the immigrants, it's not in the status of prisoners. Uh, number yeah. two is when Egypt's arguing, um, it, it can't be contested that they're not prisoners. Because they are actual prisoners, so we're talking about immigration centers which can be visited by visitors and by people who are not part of the government. But prisons in Egypt cannot be visited unless you want to be a prisoner yourself. You cannot really say. The, the anything. other thing is probably that a lot of the prisoners within Egypt um, aren't documented. So one, I, I think you mentioned earlier, Ibrahim, that you have some friends who are, or you know, someone, sorry, uh, who's in prison right now and they're on a hunger strike. Um, but they have no visitation, and 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 how? What, what sort of communication channels do um, do people on the outside have to? So how do, for example, uh, how do we know that this person is actually on hunger strike? Yeah. Um, so look, of course, we've we've watched a lot of movies and we've watched the pr- prison systems. Of course, it's nothing like it, but it's somewhat, you know, a slice of, re- of reality. And um, prison guards tend to do a lot of things whether it's for money whether it's for cigarettes whether so for you to try smuggle uh, a letter with them sometimes it works uh, some people have you know some ha- people have smuggled phones uh, and you can call them so it really it differs from every single prison within Egypt but like you said the visitation there it, you know it's denied not by only by family but it's denied by human rights watch it's denied by all NGOs it's denied by any human rights organizations there's you know, when when I was in Egypt, we and I was in the in, in the cell, we would always see someone passing by us, and we we're like, "Oh, where where did you come from?" And he's like, "Oh, I, I, you know, I, I'm one of the guys who, who had disappeared for like two years or three, three years. Uh, can you call my family? And here's a number." And he tries to give us a number so we can send his number out in the business, so my family will call his family and tell him that he's alive. So imagine a family doesn't know any anything about you know whether it's their brother, their father, their their son. They don't know anything about about him for two years and they've already you know they've probably surrendered that he's already dead or that they, he's been shot or you know the egyptian system has you know has brutally killed him and and there is many there's many reports of the amnesty international has reported about it um human rights watch has reported about the disappearance uh, the torture in the cells you know when i when i, when I seen president morsi's when i heard president morsi's death the first thing i remembered was he was brought to um a house a hospital called uh luman luman tora this is a it's a clinic it's it's not even a hospital it's a clinic within um within within a compound of pri- like many prisons and um, when i was on my hunger strike i was put in that uh, i was put in that hospital they put me in that hospital for me to, for not not to be treated for them to actually threaten me to 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 um to break my hunger strike because you know you're sleeping beside a guy who's uh, you know who has AIDS. You're sleeping beside a guy who has a contagious disease. You're sleeping beside a guy who has you know virus. So you're you're sleeping beside many people who have diseases that are very contagious, and, and you know you feel that oh you know is it really worth it that I continue my hunger strike um, and then end up with a disease because my immune system at the time is very it's very weak so should I should I break my hunger strike and listen to them and I was put in solitary at the time as well and you know Dr. Morsi has been put in solitary for six years straight man let me tell you I was put in I was put in solitary for two weeks and I felt like my, my, my brain was gonna die like I remembered everything. I started speaking to myself. Uh, you know, you start singing every song you know. You start writing on the walls with whatever. If you find a little pebble on, in, in the cell or whatever, but like then you, you start to go crazy. 
So fair play for this guy that he went six years straight and still had had some sense in his brains. I mean, he still came out and he sounded kind of. He still sounded kind of normal and. Like I said, we've you know not only me but many human rights you know organizations or activists have have went to the European Parliament and have went to Geneva and have went to the UN and we've stressed enough that the guys the guys you know his life is on the line you know he's not receiving any treatment and when I was in the hospital um, you know like I said the, the the lack of treatment he had received that that's your basic human right that if someone is sick and he's your enemy you still give them their medication he was refused and denied any medication of what sort he he appeared in court before and he said that if i had ate what the food that was put in front of me god knows what would have happened to me i would have died he knew straight away that they maybe had put poison into his food so when i heard that his death that he collapsed and you know he he stayed 20 minutes on the ground without any help what kind of what kind of human being are are, are, are you actually dealing with? Yeah, because that's one, one of the things. No that, I mean, I um I, I know a few people who who are who are supporters of the regime, and and one of the things they pushed back on was that where's the evidence that they don't have um that he didn't get health care, and there's actually a recording of him from court saying this, um and and the same with the with the twenty minutes, like there's witness testimony from inside. Uh, that the people in the because he was put in a glass cage in court, and because he was diabetic and he was probably losing eyesight in one of his eyes because he wasn't treated. Uh, there's documentation yeah. from a previous court recording where he said, "I don't, I don't really understand what you're doing. Like, what kind of court is this? Because I don't see you. I don't really hear you because uh, they're soundproof." Um, and then the people in the other cage saw him fall down and started banging on the door uh, on their cage, um, and it took like 20 minutes for them to. Uh, for them to no, because them. they saw it. They saw him fall on the floor. The guards, I think, most of the courts saw him fall on the floor, but they didn't do anything for twenty minutes. Yeah, they just waited. They just held. Uh, yeah, I think a lot was, of people. There was a doctor in the other yeah, cage, another prisoner. I think a lot of people are saying that they, they they never saw him for twenty minutes, and then they, when they saw him, which makes no sense because this is Mohammed Morsi at the moment. You'd be talking about the, yeah. the ex-president, like the whole entire this courtroom's attentions on this one guy. If he falls down, you're gonna know about it. You know what yeah, I mean? It's, it's not like you can't you can't not see a person who's in the defendant stand. Yeah, like like bringing it up, as you said, man. Like you just mentioned something. You said there was a doctor who's a prisoner in, in in the other you know in the other cage, and that's you just reminded me of something. That's that's this. You know, I'm gonna tell you that eighty percent of our treatment, right, was from doctors who were imprisoned with us. And the other twenty percent was probably a cold or a flu that, if you went out, they would have gave you a Panadol. Mm. So if you had any medication that you needed, we were dependent on the doctors with us that they had some connections on outside that they would somehow try to negotiate some uh, some right of medication. It took us. I've seen, you know, Doctor Salah Sultan. He's he's Muhammad Sultan's dad. His medication was was all gathered in a in a lunch bag. You know, one of those plastic bags sandwich bags and you know he didn't know which tablet was which and then they opened the bag and they threw them all on the floor and they made made him pick it all up right in front of my eyes so when dr morrissey was was denied for 20 minutes it's not something that surprises me and goes oh and i go oh wow no because i've witnessed this and it's not something that sixty thousand uh you know political prisoners have complained about all in agreement we have no said oh the guy who's who's in, in you know in a prison that's like 50 100 200 miles away we're going to agree that when you go up to your court in front of your judge uh, you're going to speak about uh, a lack of uh, lack of medication and lack of healthcare and I've... a lot of people denied that morsi uh, was sick yet again look at it and in, in, in his in his death and i you know 
Dr. Morsi is one person who's known about. I had a guy with me who was who was denied his tablets and he died in, in the cell. I had another guy who was in the cell beside us. He died in his cell. So Dr. Morsi was the case that's very known. So, of course, there was a lot of media attention. But there is simple people that weren't known as well who had died with the same result of the lack of medication. I think that it's important to note that lack of medication by itself would be an omission. But it would be a death there also be a murder but with morsi the un requested postmortems and egypt egypt seemed quite um disgruntled and quite offended by the notion that anybody would assume that egypt killed morsi in terms of actual killing him um, which would re- be revealed in postmortems um and they buried how long did it take to bury his body like 2 3 days and they didn't let anyone attend the funeral the thing is wife and his two sons Uh, no newspaper reported on it except one and they failed to mention that he was a president in the newspaper as well i think this kind of indicates that um, the the system that's run under the current administration is quite uh, in a sense machiavellian in terms of cc wants to control every single perception anyone has of the ex president within his own country you know we talk about how cc how morsi came in and gave people these intellectual freedoms these kind of rights to think um i think it's kind of going backwards now if you'd argue that when cc comes in he kind of distorts the image of certain things in in favor of what he wants people to believe one example being the the death of mohammed morsi um I, there are some videos online of news channels reporting on the death of morsi and the way they report on it it's quite it's it's it's, it's alarming to think that an ex president's death would bring that much attention to the media you know somebody mentions in like a 2 second bulletin oh by the way mohammed morsi's died next up the african cup of nations we are hosting the african cup of nations fantastic 5 minutes on african cup which, of nations which which again so one of the one of, again this becomes a bit conspiratorial which is it's is very convenient time because um egypt is in the limelight for that and that's what they're covering and they did this huge extravagant ceremony um like a day or two after uh dr morsi died Yeah, I think CC hasn't commented on his death as well. Oh. Uh, I don't think the administration as a whole has commented quite comprehensively on his death. Um even yeah. though they have been called yeah, by the yeah. United Nations for the government to respond in any way it can. You know, if someone dies in a person's government, if someone dies in a British prison that had nothing to do with politics, that wasn't a politician and there was calls that he died because of maltreatment, the government would need to respond within a day maximum. We're talking about Egypt here where the government has people are applying that the government has a hand in the murder of an ex-president the first democratically elected president of the country who died in a courtroom who was on the floor for 20 minutes and the government's not said a word about it I think that's quite alarming to be honest You know when um when Machiavelli talks about in his book he writes the book The Prince I think is couple I think 15th century was Machiavelli He writes in the book The Prince Sorry? about so Machiavelli he writes in the book he writes a book called The Prince and in the book he talks about mm-hmm. um how the 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 main kind of context of the book the the prince himself would maintain power um how he would run government and how he would main um how he would sustain his power in government how he would make sure that he would never lose power and if you cross reference a lot of the points made in this manual The Prince to Sisi's rule it comes as no surprise that cc is himself uh, he he is the prince he is the person who does he keeps power by any means necessary 
in the book it talks about massacring populations to keep power it talks about killing yeah. political opponents to keep power it talks about distorting media distorting perceptions to keep power and this is all it's, it's all relevant to this case right now because in 2013 when morsi was uh, when he was ousted um most most western um newspapers and media organizations didn't really pick a side as much as they are doing today so we have places we have uh, publications like the new york times the guardian the independent even the BB, even bbc news which is seen as slightly biased um bbc news is is calling president morsi bbc news is reporting on the fact that he may have died because of maltreatment in prisons so i think it's important that we kind of we don't forget about this even though it, the the government of Egypt already forgot about it and they're hoping we move on and think about the african cup nations or they're hoping we move on and think about something else um news gets lost really quickly really quickly now so i think it's really important that people who actually care about the legacy of mohammed morsi keep it up and keep up the fact that we need to we need to try to find answers in regards to his death um i think i had i had a couple more questions uh, as we get to wrapping up uh the first one was about um i i've i've remembered speaking to you about this a uh, long time ago about some some of the things you mentioned i think maybe it was an article or a talk that you were doing um where you mentioned that some of the most inspirational people you met were were in that prison and you were and and some of them are still in um because mm-hmm. i think you got out because uh the irish government um kind of intervened on on your behalf and and pushed um the egyptian government to let you out am i correct mhm yeah that's that's true Zakhub. and look uh, like like i say i i miss my i miss my brothers i miss my friends that i've left behind i miss people who who have slept beside you know 24/7 and we've really built a strong bond and a strong connection of any any of love and and a strong relationship together um and every day wallah have pain that i've i've left them any behind and that somehow i was i was released because i had some sort of documentation that has made my life more valuable than theirs and wallah any Allah's witness that that my life is not is not any any valuable to any any value to comparing to theirs because they are people I've listened to they are people I've I've heard uh, and learned from and people that I continue to learn from and people that I continue to implement what I've learned from uh, in my everyday to day basis so subhanallah I I pay in every day that I see them still behind bars and situations are getting worse and as i said you know i fear of what happens after president morsi's death because cc now has has no you know he has no competition he he can feel free to do more than what he does you know a lot of us were kind of speaking that morsi needs to return morsi 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 now morsi's gone he's going to say you know i'm president now um so you know i i fear i fear for what happens with them but i can't do any something for them that Allah has already planned for them so Allah's with them inshallah make dua for them um and I'll continue to pray for them uh, that one day inshallah that I meet up with them because it was so beautiful that even the ones that were released when I went to Turkey on a holiday some of them were in Turkey we all met up and it was just so nice to meet on the other side it was so nice to sit and it was so nice to have a chat and a laugh and you know reminisce on all the hard moments that actually you know where you know we made jokes out of and we started to laugh of, uh, 
about. Um, so inshallah, one day they'll be released. So of course, uh, I you know there, there's many many inspirational people, and I just don't want to name one because then I would would have left many out. But you know, um, there's there's also people who who went in as kids, you know, with me. But yet again, I I I, I speak about them. I write about them because. Um, they need to finish their education. They need to finish their life. They have they have a they have a long life in front of them. It's been a, over a year uh, and a bit now, a year and a half that since I was released. So, you know, it's not fair that I I sense that year that they've still they've still suffered and they're still painting through. Um, I really want to say, Yani, Jazakallah khair and Taqabullah that that you have done such a platform for me to also share about them uh, some stories that. Maybe one one you know, one person can can create an effect or or start a campaign or make a difference uh, that can can change situations. But you know, I I also you know um, send the message to the people who had hope in in Mursi and as they said when when the Prophet uh, said, "Man kana Muhammad, Muhammad qad mat. If if you worship Muhammad, Muhammad, you know Muhammad is, has now passed away, and if you worship Allah, Allah Allah does not die." Um, so you know, put your trust in Allah, and and like I said, I know I know for me that I take it as a is as a blatant murder. Um, whether they've put something in their food for him, whether they have gave him an injection, and like I said, it reminded me when I was in the hospital of the situation. Like I just recall the story now that that I spoke about um, when I was in hospital, the same exact hospital that Doctor Multi was brought in to treat to be treated. Um, this is meant to be you know where the doctors are. Um, one of the prisoners was dying, and he needed his injection, and um, and then he, he like he was dying and he was suffering and he passed away, and then the doctor gave him his injection, and then he was laughing with his colleague on the side. So this is not once like it's not only this story, but I have many stories that I could, from, from that I've witnessed in that a lot of people were dying, dying, dying right in front of my eyes in that in that place. So it wasn't a surprise for me that Dr. Musi had passed away, but yeah. And it, a lot of people are being murdered in the same way. So and it, it won't finish. So seeing this with your own eyes, for four years you were you were you were imprisoned and then getting released and then coming back to Ireland, which is a Western country, yeah. coming back to the life that you were you were brought up in. Did you have to readjust in any way? Because you saw people die in front of your eyes. You saw yeah. you, you were tortured yourself, um, quite badly as well, reading the article. Um how was yeah. it how was it readjusted? Because it's not easy. It wouldn't be easy. Um, seeing as though what um, you went through, so it's it's yeah, like, it's definitely it's definitely very hard. I said like it's it's very very difficult. It's um, for me, Subhanallah. I always had hope that one day, and until of course that I I surrendered to the fact that I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. Um, but deep down, I always knew that you know I was always daydreaming of kind of Ireland, my home, the weather, the beautiful the beautiful relationships I had there, my friends. So uh, even though I, I had kind of lost hope, if that makes sense, but I had it still stored within me. If, like I always daydreamed about it. I always, that, that, that image or the memories always kept me going that maybe one day I'll be allowed to go back. Even though I had surrendered that, you know, that I'd be here for 25 years. I was four years, uh, you know, I was still a defendant for four years. So imagine if I was a defendant for four years, how, how long they're going to keep me for when I was sentenced. Mm. Uh, so I surrendered that I'd be there. You know, and my case was a death sentence case. So so I feared the fact that the one day they will come in and shoot me or kill me um, or, t- you know, take me and, and tell me, come on, it's it's time. 
it's time for you to die right now. That that was kind of very scary for me, but it, you, somehow you surrender to it in the end. And CC, I said this on the CNN, uh, that CC comes out and says that I don't have any political prisoners. He's denying 60,000 lives. That means he does not want to mention them because if he, if he was to take a step against them and shoot all of them, he'll say, I came out and I said, I don't have any prisoners. And I, and I know that for, fact, for a fact that this can happen one day. It had happened in Egypt's history, and it can happen again. It, it, it's, 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 no, it's no big shock. But, uh, you know, readjusting for me somehow, I, I, like I said, I had this image that one day I'll go back. But all the Egyptian people, they, 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 they think of once they walk out their cell, what's going to happen? They're going to go back into the same regime, the same system, the same oppressive. Uh, they're going to be treated bad for the rest of their life in the in a country that you know. I felt I felt some hardships here. Some jobs kind of look at me and said, "Oh, you've been to prison." When even though I was proven innocent after four years of being a defendant, I wasn't even sentenced. Um, you know, some jobs kind of look to you that, "Oh no, you you've been through the prison system," so they kind of get scared. And this is Europe. So imagine being in the country. Yeah, oh, you're a quite... political prisoner. You've yeah, you've opposed the president. No, we don't want any trouble. We don't want you. So so people are going to find a lot of difficult uh, hardships when they when they get released. And this is exactly what I'm saying again. This is one of the many many uh, methods of manufacturing terrorists in Egypt. So I think if he's going to go out and he's not going to find a life, what else is he going to do? He's going to take revenge. So you, when you were in prison, you were at the liberty of having an Irish passport. So you were an Irish citizen whilst you were in the Egyptian prison. And a lot of the 60,000 people who are in the prisons who are prisoners, they're not Irish citizens. They're not citizens mm-hmm. of any European country or Western country. They're Egyptians. And the fact that yeah. they are Egyptians means that the government has more... Well, they seem to assume that they have more well, open no, reign no over the control. No one's going to intervene on their behalf. Yeah, so we have, so we have mm-hmm. the, the Irish government intervening on your behalf. Um, but then who, yeah. who's going to be the person, the third party that comes and says, no, this is our citizen, this is our person. You can't take him as a prisoner. He's done nothing wrong. For these people that you say that you met in these prisons, the Egyptians... Um, that have really no hope. So you said you surrendered yourself to the to the fact that you'd be in prison for the rest of your life, um, which I'd assume a lot of these Egyptians have as well. Bearing in mind, if they were to be released, um, I think a lot of them would see the the regime that they'd live under as a prison as well. I, th- I think that that opens up to another, and I think that's my my final question is. Uh, how how do you respond to people who, especially in the UK, they say that, or not just UK, in the West, they're saying that we have our own community, our own problems. Um, what kind of what businesses are of ours? Um, and this is also it's a it's a right wing argument, but I've heard it from many Muslims as well. Is why do you, why do we have to get involved with this issue that's happening abroad? There's an Egyptian problem, um, and they should sort it out themselves. Mm-hmm. That's you know uh, that's a you know sometimes I I think about this question with myself uh, as I've received it a lot of course from people and from from media that why why not like fix the problems here first of all you know life in the West is very 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 comfortable comparing to uh, you know countries like Egypt or or the Middle East like where where people you know I denied their simple rights but that for me wasn't kind of the the main uh, focus point I was focusing on that I always say that if we neglect the issues from over there they will become the issues of over here and that's exactly why a lot of people are kind of like uh, you know fighting the refugee or the the asylum seekers uh, system 
where they're saying, oh, why should we take any anyone in? Well, sorry, you've, you know, um, you have passed history with with a lot of pain uh, to become the known Europe that you are now. If you look into Europe's history, it wasn't all comfortable, beautiful Europe in its history. No, there was a lot of wars. There was a lot of hardship. And even here in Ireland, when that famine happened, there's there's a school named uh, and it has a crest over Turkey's uh, t- Turkey's you know half moon um, from the flag, of course, because uh, Turkey helped Ireland uh, during the famine. Uh, so, so there is history where Muslim countries have helped uh, you know European countries, but. Yet again, it's time for them to help uh, to help uh, countries that are really in need and the people that are really in need because freedom does not have a limit. Freedom does not have boundaries. Freedom does not have you know you don't need a passport for freedom. You don't you don't need uh, you don't need a passport for human rights. You don't need a passport to be able to live like a normal basic human being. So my final question to you: You've now been free for over one and a half years or so. Um, and you're currently mm-hmm. studying law at university. Um, is there any correlation mm-hmm. between your experience within the prisons and your your decision to study law? Um, do you want to go yes. into that field? You know, human rights. Do you want to be an activist in that kind of regard? Always. Yeah, just, like. Yeah. Yeah, my, my field was always like, look, my field was always, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. I wanted to study planes. I love planes. I, I, I wanted to, to even, you know, uh, take my my career into becoming a pilot um some somehow but subhanallah when when i was when i was put in that system i realized that no yani i i can take a benefit out of studying law and help the people who are really in need of help i can speak on their behalf i can you know see see the just uh, justice system um abused look like like if i put it simply people in the, the, the judges in egypt were using the law to abuse the people they were using it. They were sta- they were they were stating it the way they want. They were applying it the way they want. They were implementing it the way they want. And for me, I felt like no, th- there needs to be someone who you know knows the system, who, who has been through the system, who has seen the other side and the abusive uh, systems that, that that take place in in because in the end of the day, prisons are kind of all the same in in, in countries. So I needed to be on the other side to be able to understand the side of law and to be able able to speak on behalf of human beings that are, that are in need and and seriously seriously are calling for help and have no one to answer their calls i had a lot of people who answered my calls um because i'm european but yet again there's a lot of egyptian people there's a lot of palestinian people there's a, there's a lot of uh, syrian people there's a lot of people who need help who need us to be there for them who need you to write an article some people you know some people tell me like when i go to a protest or when i write a post on on facebook they're like oh Brahim, what, what's it going to do i i'm like you know the the actual thought of me not being forgotten at the time was very very important. When my sister message wrote a letter to me once and she said, "Ibrahim, I've run out out of options." I felt like my life has come to an end. Even if she had wrote to me and lied to me in a letter saying that she is still trying something, that was kind of more hopeful. That doesn't mean that you know I didn't have my trust in Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. No, it has nothing. To, we're still human beings in the end of it, you know. Um, and at the time when she said that to me, I felt like, you know, I might as well just remain here hopeless. I'm a hopeless case. It has taken, imagine it has taken my government as a citizen who was born here, raised here. It's taken them four years and, uh, and two months to release me. So imagine how long it's going to take 
to actually pressure governments to speak about the Egyptian people because, not because it's their right to speak about, you know, to, to have freedom of expression, but their right because if you don't want terrorists to uh, end up blowing uh, countries, then you need to stop the manufacturing of where it happens and it takes places. And that's, that's it. so it's in the end of the day, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to, you know, convince them that it's, it's the benefit for them rather than the, bene- the benefit is actually for the, the person being oppressed. So I, I needed to take that, that career path to be able to speak for the people who need a voice, for the people who are simple, for the people who have, have no money to afford the lawyer, um, for the people who, who, who don't understand the law, who, for the people who, who, you know, fall within the justice system just because they wanted something better for their kids and for their, for, for their grandchildren. And I wanted to be able to say that I've been through it, I know how it feels, and I won't let you down. That's really, um, there's really something, yeah, it's really moving because, you know, Usually, when I think about why I chose engineering, it's um, money, uh, basically. Well, not even that. It's just uh, I got told to do it. Um, but anyway, Jazakal uh, <laughs> Khair for your time. Uh, really appreciate it, um, and really, Thank really, you very much. really enjoyed this episode and having having you on. And it was very insightful as well. So I hope our listeners find the same. Um, I'd like to apologize to our listeners if there were any audio issues during this episode. Um, inshallah, we're working on um, improving our kit, but also sending kits now that we're dialing in. Um, guests um, you can email us on the middlewestpc at gmail.com with your feedback comments um, is that the middlewestpc or middlewestpc middlewestpc at gmail.com mm-hmm. um, without the the so middlewestpc at gmail.com uh, you can uh, like us on facebook follow us on twitter at the middlewestpc um, and uh, y- uh, you can listen to the podcast on youtube spotify pocket casts um, apple uh, podcast it's not itunes anymore iTunes has now been discontinued. Yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah, it's now, just yeah. called Apple <laughs> Podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you guys. Jazakum Allah khair. Uh, see you with another episode. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.